Welcome to my Parsha share this week for Parshat Vayechi. And we're going to continue on the Yaakov theme, and we're going to develop that theme even further. We're going to look at a wonderful piece of Nasiva's Sholem, as many of you know, who watch my Parsha share regularly. I love the Nasiva's Sholem, and I'm going to share with you a wonderful piece, a beautiful piece of Nasiva's Sholem, a classic Nasiva's Sholem, to look at Yaakov and look at the... Uh, whole idea of Yerida to Egypt, to the Golos, the exile in Egypt, and indeed what message this can hold for all of us. Let's begin with the, I mean, at the beginning, right? It's always a good idea to start at the beginning. What is the beginning of Parshat Vayechi? So we start Vayechi with the Posuk as follows. Vayechi Yaakov be'eret Mitzrayim, Shva Esrei Shona. Vayechi Yemei Yaakov, Shnei Chayov. Sheva shonim varboim umas shona. Yaakov Avinu was in Egypt for 17 years and he died at the age of 147. Now there is a, a glaring, a superfluous piece of information in that posuk, in that verse. What is it? That Yaakov Avinu lived in Egypt for 17 years. There's absolutely no reason for us to have that information in the Posuk, as the Nesivas Sholem is going to explain to us. The Mepharshim, the commentaries, um, all are very puzzled by this Posuk. Why did the Torah feel the need to inform us that Yaakov was in Egypt for 17 years? It's already very clear in, in the scripture, in, a, in the previous parsha, when Yaakov went to Egypt, how old was he? He was 130 years. We discussed that last in last week's shir. When he had that discussion with, uh, with Pharaoh, with the Pharaoh of Egypt, he asked him, how old are you? He said, I'm 130 years old and I've had a difficult life, whatever it is. Now, if you are good basic arithmetic, I'm sure all of you watching or listening to this uh, broadcast, this parasha share, are extremely good at basic arithmetic. You can work out that if Yaakov Avinu died at the age of 147 and he arrived in Egypt at the age of 130, now if you minus 130 from 147, what's the result? You can all say it at once. 17. In which case, why does the Pasuk feel the need to inform us that the Yechi Yaakov Be'eret Mitzrayim Shvaisri Shona? We know by uh, virtue of the fact that we have some basic arithmetic training that 147 minus 130 leaves us with 17. That's the question of the Mepharshim. We already can calculate for ourselves that Yaakov Avinu lived in Mitzrayim for 17 years. In which case, what extra message did the Posset come to teach us by telling us that he'd lived in Mitzrayim for 17 years? So, the Yesh Lefarish Indian says the Nasibas Sholem, I would like to explain to you what this is all about. I'd like to unwrap this, unpack it. I'd like to deliver to you the message which is contained in this seemingly superfluous piece of information. The Marumaz Khan Indian Yuridosa Shal Yaakov Lemitzrayim. 
Because, in effect, what is hinted at here is the fact that Yaakov Avinu um, had descended to Egypt himself. right? I mean, let's think about it. Yaakov Avinu was one of the Oves HaKadoshim. And we know that Avraham, and we're going to refer to him in a moment, Avraham, um, Abraham, the first of our patriarchs, did go to Egypt, but he went for a very brief time because he had to get away from the famine in Canaan when he arrived there, but then he went back to Canaan. Yaakov Avinu went to Egypt and he stayed there until he died. So we need to understand there needs to be some explanation as to why it is that Yaakov Avinu went to Egypt and remained there for 17 years. And says the Nesiva Shalom, Let's explain it based on what our holy uh, rabbinic commentaries have taught us in their books. Every place you go to, wherever you are in the world, doesn't matter what place you are, there's something special there, there's something spiritual there, there's something godly there. But very often, it's not immediately apparent to us ordinary folk as to what that special nitzot, that spark of spirituality, of godliness, is. We don't know. We can't see it. Of course, if you go into a shul, or if you go into the home of a great rabbi, or if you go into a medrash of a yeshiva, it's very easy to see that that place is a holy place. Why? Because people are studying Torah. It's a place where people pray. It's a place that is dedicated to God. But if you go to a place which, let's say you, you're shopping in a mall, what spiritual um, sparks what sparks of godliness are there in a shopping mall? It's not something that you and me can easily discern. But that's not to say that there's nothing holy in a shopping mall. It just happens to be that it's not apparent to us because it's hidden away in all the many layers of materialism that are covering it. So let's have a look at what the necessity was for Yaakov to go to Egypt. The whole purpose of the Yerida to Mitzrayim was to, in some respect, uncover, unwrap, and reveal all the holy sparks that exist in that seemingly um, unholy location. Reb Chaim of Chernovitz, one of the main Talmudim of the Mezrich Magid, in the late 18th and early 19th century, he wrote a Sefer Be'er Ma'im Chaim, one of the classic Hasidic Sforim that we have in our collection of many Hasidic Sforim. Be'er Ma'im Chaim is at the top. It's uh, one of the top ten, as you might say. And he says as follows, quoted here by the Nesiva Sholem, Shetchilas HaTikkun Shal Golos Mitzrayim Hoisokval Yedeha Oves HaKadoshim He comes up here with a most marvelous concept, an exceptional idea. Listen to this carefully that um, the entire concept or the idea of going down to Egypt had already been um, prepared or, as it were, uh, anticipated in the visits to those locations of the great forebears of those who ultimately went to Egypt together with Yaakov and ultimately became the Jewish nation. What are we talking about? So the purpose of these great figures, these great Jewish figures, um, the uh, foundational figures of Judaism going to Egypt, 
before the Jewish nation became enslaved there was so that they could prepare the way for the Jewish nation when they were there um, because, as it were, they could ensure that the landing wasn't as hard as it might have been had they not visited Egypt in the first place. One of the aspects of Egypt which was very endangering for, the, uh, for a human being and for, I guess, the Jewish nation, the nascent Jewish nation, before it emerged in the exodus from Egypt and went to Har Sinai, one of the great threats to its very creation was Ervas Mitzrayim, was the fact that Egypt was the source of a particular form of evil, the evil of promiscuity and of sexual misbehavior. So that is something that needed to be counteracted in anticipation of the arrival of the Jewish nation in Egypt. And Chazal, in the Talmudic and Midrashic sages, tell us that the ultimate form of sexual impropriety was, as it were, the central theme of ancient Egypt. And it happens to be that in the midst of this um, center of grave sexual um, depravity, that was exactly where the Jewish nation had to reside. If they would have collapsed under the strain of this particular um, negative force, you should know something. If the Jewish nation at that very early stage would have fallen foul of this particular human desire to engage in sexual impropriety, they wouldn't have been able to extricate themselves from Egypt. So the uh, founding patriarchs of the Jewish nation, they somehow managed to subdue this element of the influence of Egypt, even before the Jews got there, so that the Jewish nation would be able to emerge from there peacefully. And as a result of this, they were somewhat protected, as it were, in terms of their exposure to matters of sexual depravity and they were able to resist it because of the fact that the great and the good of the Jewish nation had come there earlier. That's what we're going to be talking about now. That's what the Nesiba Sholem wants to unpack here using the posuk of Vayechi Yaakov Be'eret Mitzrayim Shvayesri Shona as his foundation. Let's begin with Abraham and Sarah. Avraham and Sarah, they came to Egypt. As you know, they arrived in Lech Lecha. They arrived in Eretz Canaan. Guess what? When they arrived in Eretz Canaan, the land was barren. They weren't able to feed their families and the people who had come with them from Choron. And they had to go to Egypt. Well, what happened was, if you recall, the story from Lech Lecha, Avraham said to Sarah, please don't reveal that I'm your husband, say I'm your brother. And indeed, when she arrived there, she was kidnapped because she was extremely attractive and that was a very important story, a foundational story for the Jewish nation. Not because it demonstrated that Abraham and Sarah were great people, which indeed they were. There's no question about it that Abraham and Sarah were very great people. Abraham had um, self-selectingly found God. 
he'd become a monotheist. He was spreading the message of monotheism in a world that was entirely pagan and resistant to monotheistic ideas and to the concept of a creator god. And he was an exceptional, exceptional person, which of course is why he is the first of our patriarchs. Abraham comes before Yitzhak and Yaakov. However, that's not the reason why this story is in the Torah. There's many, I'm sure, great stories about Abraham and Sarah, and Abraham himself and Sarah herself, that are not found in the Torah because the Torah is not a history book. So why is this story in the Torah? So Chazal want to say, they want to suggest that the reason this story is in the Torah is to give some sense as to how far in advance God prepared the way for the Jewish nation that was going to emerge out of Egypt and march towards Sinai, he wanted to show that this was something that was centuries in the making. That here was Avraham and Sarah long before they'd had children coming to Egypt and preparing the way. In what way were they preparing Mitzrayim, Egypt, for their descendants? And this is what uh, we're going to be talking about now. That's why Abraham and Sarah went to Egypt. Because at that stage, when they arrived in Egypt and they were challenged with this, with this terrible problem of Pharaoh wanting to, I guess, marry or at least acquire Sarah as, uh, as somebody with whom he could engage sexually, that was something which was um, with an eye to the future. Because the fact that we are, were able to subdue the evil influence of Egypt was by virtue of the fact that Sarah was kidnapped by Parai for the types of reasons we've described. And nevertheless, she did not succumb to his approach, uh, his approach, and she was able to resist it, and that prepared the way. That managed to somehow diminish the influence, the evil influence of the main theme of Egypt for her descendants. Sha'amru Chazal, Chazal say, and this is in Pirkei de Rebliezer, Perik Chofvov, Ki pare rotza loseis lokol hoin shabaolam. Pare wanted to give her every possible treasure, every possible item of uh, um, value that you can imagine in the world. Um, and the fact that she refused it, the fact that she was managed, she managed to resist um, Pharaoh's offers of great wealth was um, something that managed to diminish, that through that managed to diminish the influence, the evil influence of Mitzrayim. So if it was at 100% before Sarah Imenu arrived in Egypt, it was at, let's call it 90%. It was 10% weakened as a result of what Sarah did to Pare. He, she was clearly uh, um, able to resist his advances, and as a result of that, Egypt's strength in this particular sphere was weakened. And now we have the story of Yosef. So Sarah, I guess, is a representation of Jewish women. She resisted Pharaoh's advances, and as a result of that, Jewish women were able to resist the um, evil influences of Egypt when they were there. Joseph then came to Egypt. He was able, and by the way, it's much more powerful for men than it is for women, because uh, uh, men, as, as a rule, are much more susceptible to 
the negative influences of a very sexually charged environment. And therefore, the fact that Joseph was able to resist Ashes Poitifa is a very powerful lesson. We need to understand why that story is in the Torah. It's a strong story. Now, we know it's part of the story because as a result of that, he was thrown into jail. He met the butler and the baker and he interpreted their dreams. And then he interpreted the dreams of, um, of Parai as a result of which he became the leader of Egypt. But uh, be that as it may, we need to know why the very vivid details of this attempted um, assault of Yosef or embrace of Yosef, which might have resulted in him uh, breaking down. He, he was very, very concerned about his job, about his status, and he knew that he would be maligned if he refused her advances. Nevertheless, he was able to resist them, at, um, uh, and it was a great danger for him, and as a result of which he was indeed put in jail. Nevertheless, he managed to withstand the temptation that existed both in terms of her attractiveness and in terms of his own position. And he managed to maintain his standards and sustain who he was as a great tzaddik. We call him Yosef HaTzaddik. He's the only one of the Shavotim of the tribes of the children of Yaakov Avinu who is referred to by the name Tzaddik because he was able to resist this, but he did it in Egypt and that was the key. That's what the Nasiba Sholem wants to bring out of this uh, particular episode, that it happened in Egypt. Agamamara Kosov, the Posuk tells us, she spoke to him every single day. She tried to um, uh, seduce him seduce the Aishas Paitifa tried to seduce Yosef. The Isan the Medrash says each and every day was a new test for him, was a new challenge for him to resist the um, advances of his mistress. The Shofach Domai Bachalyoim Alzeh, and each and every day was if he was killing himself over this, that he was able to resist her was nothing less than a superhuman effort. And then finally, she really, she almost, uh, as it were, dragged him into the bedroom and tried to do. Uh, something with him that he didn't want to do and as a result of which he had to run away she grabbed his tunic she tore his tunic and that was the the worst scenario of all whereas previously she'd only spoken to him and tried to get him to do it here she'd actually engaged in a physical act and he'd run away as a result of his incredible strength uh, of character the, the fact that he was able to resist her advances at that late stage and to uh, great danger to himself, that managed to diminish the strength of this particular influence in Egypt. If you want to understand why Yosef needed to spend time in Egypt and not just be the ruler of Egypt and in some other way, but why he had to go through this particular process, the reason was because he needed to go through this episode so that he would diminish the strength of the influence of uh, adultery and sexual impropriety in Egypt for his descendants and the descendants of Yaakov Avinu, the nascent Jewish nation during their time in Eretz Mitzrayim. Because that the Jewish nation would be able to withstand the pressures of this very um, 
very negative influence. This society which sought to downgrade them from their spiritual level to something which was degraded and uh, terrible and uh, you know that their behavior would not be a reflection of their of their heritage and of their ultimate destiny which was as the people of God the only way they were able to withstand those influences was because Yosef had managed to withstand the seduction efforts um, and, and attempts of Ashes Poitifar. And similarly, we know from Sora Imenu that she was able to withstand a similar attempt by Paroi. That was why Sora, that was why Yosef had to be in Egypt before the Jewish nation got there. Kumamar Chazal, and as we see in Vayikra Rabbah, in the Medrash, it says as follows Sora Imenu Atma as a result of, of Sora Imenu, of our matriarch Sarah's ability to withstand the seduction that she went through when she was in Egypt, all the women of the Jewish nation were able to withstand any influences of that nature when they were there. Yosef Yorad and similarly, all the men were able to withstand. They had, they had somehow created a precedent which was a positive influence. It was like a mentoring of the Jewish nation in anticipation of their arrival in Egypt. Sora and Yosef were the heroes who had managed to prevent the Jewish nation from falling foul of these particular um, dangers to their spiritual uh, level. And now we understand why Yaakov had to go to Egypt. So Yaakov was the ultimate. He was one of the patriarchs and he came to Egypt and he came for 17 years. Now we understand why he needed to be there. We know why Sarah was there. We know why Yosef was there. But the Nasiba Shalom wants to fold this same idea into Yaakov being in Egypt. He wanted to elevate, to strengthen the strength of Kedusha, the power of holiness and sanctity, and to diminish and to subdue the strength of impurity in the land of Egypt by being there. And now we understand why the Possek needs to tell us he was there for 17 years. Of course, we can calculate it via basic arithmetic. That goes without saying. Of course, we're able to know um, uh, how long Yaakov was in Mitzrayim. Why? Because we're very good at math. We're very good at arithmetic and we can work out that 147 minus 130 is 17. But that's not the reason why this piece of information is in the Torah. The reason it's in there is the Shva Esrei Begematre Toiv, because the uh, number 17 is the same numerical, numerical value as the word Toiv. Tes is 9, Vov is 6, and Base is 2, and that number is 17. Um, it's, uh, it's, it, the fact is that um, they were able, um, through uh, the Jewish nation, were able, through Yaakov being in Egypt, for 17 years, which is toiv to withstand the influences of Egypt. Why? Because the word toiv um, implies one's ability to withstand the, um, the, uh, the desires of a sexual nature that naturally occur to a human being. 
How do we know that? Because we know that these particular influences, these negative aspects of human nature, are referred to as Ra, as bad. Ra is the opposite of Toiv. As it says in the Posuk, it's in Bereshis Perik Lamad Base, talking about the son of Yehuda, it says, that Er, the son of Yehuda, he was the eldest son of Judah, was considered bad in the eyes of God, and we know that that's with reference to his um, misbehavior of a sexual nature, and therefore we know that the word Ra is is associated with that particular mode of behavior. The tikkun apagomim nikra toiv, in which case we know the opposite of ra is toiv. We know that the uh, to correct oneself from the ra, one has to be toiv. That's that goes without saying. And we actually have a posuk in Yeshaya perigimel that says imru tzadik ki toiv. How do we know that somebody is right righteous because he is toiv? He is good. Tzadik who midas yusoid. What is the, what does it mean to be a tzadik? So this is a very interesting um, aside here, as it were. The Nesiva Shalom says, ultimately, in order to be a tzaddik, doesn't mean that you need to be a great scholar. Um, that's what he seems to be implying. It means that you are somebody who can withstand the material and physical desires of the material world, that you are able to withstand the pressures of being a human being, of being an, an Adam Khumri, a material person. And that is something that is referred to as toiv. If you want to know, and yesoid, the foundation of a good person, of a tzaddik, of a righteous individual, it, which is the midas yesoid, that is something which is based on their ability to withstand um, any influences of a negative sexual nature. If you are able to correct this particular influence within your life, if you're, if you're able to withstand this aspect of human nature in your life, then you are called good. And good means you're righteous. A tzaddik is someone who is toiv. As a result of the fact that Jacob lived in Egypt for 17 years, which is the same numerical value. 17 is the same numerical value as toiv, as good. And as a result of that, he subdued somewhat this negative influence of Egypt, so that the Jewish nation could descend to Egypt and emerge um, as, uh, uh, having withstood all the influences of this particular aspect of human nature. That's why the Torah wants to tell us that Yaakov lived in Egypt for 17 years, to tell us that he was preparing the way. It's not that he's telling us a number. This is not a piece of history. This is not simply giving us information. It's telling us a foundational fact about Yaakov being in Egypt. Explain to us why Yaakov needed to be in Egypt. What was he doing there? What he was doing there is he was building on the foundation of 
Yosef and Sora, and he was elevating it to a, a better level so that when his descendants emerged from Egypt or potentially could emerge from Egypt, they would be able to do so, having been able to withstand this aspect of human nature. He was there for 17 years, which is 17 and like Toiv. And he was able somewhat to mitigate these aspects of Ra. This was something that gave the Jewish nation, his descendants, the ability to withstand the influences of Egypt. But now the Nesiva Shalom is going to talk about something which is a much more foundational question. In its essence, it is a, an introduction to Parsha Shemois and Sefer Shemois and to the most important story of our origins as a nation, which is our time in Egypt. Why were we in Egypt? What were we doing there? What was the point of the exile in Egypt? After all, Yaakov Avinu had brought up a wonderful, a wonderful family. He had 12 wonderful sons. And they were, all, uh, they were all going to be the founders of tribes that would um, out-survive them and their um, children and grandchildren. They would be the tribes that would be the foundation of the Jewish nation. Why did they need to go to Egypt? Why couldn't they just emerge as a Jewish nation out of Canaan? Okay, so you need to go and get the Torah from Mount Sinai. You go from Eretz Canaan to Mount Sinai. It's a bit of a trip, but you go there and you come back. Why did they need to go to Egypt first? That's the question that the Nesiva Shalom is going to address. We need to understand why it is that the Jewish nation even needed to go to Egypt in the first place. So you're going to say, of course they needed to go. There was the covenant of the Ben Absorim, the covenant that God made with Abraham, um, uh, many, many years earlier, in which he had said, You should surely know that your descendants will be um, uh, foreigners in a country that doesn't belong to them, and they will serve them. That's something that was already predicted by God to Abraham in the Brisbane Absorim, in which case, that why would you think that the Jewish nation shouldn't go to Egypt, says the Nesiva Shalom. It doesn't say that they had to go to Egypt. Okay, it's after another, another country. Why couldn't they go to China? Or why couldn't they go to uh, Turkey? Why did they need to go to Egypt? God didn't say that they were going to Mitzrayim. Why did God choose as the land of Eretz Lohem that it had to be Egypt, that this um, center of impurity, of ritual impurity, of evil, as it were, should be the place where they need to go and sit in exile until they emerge as the Jewish nation. Says the Nesiva Shalom, elsewhere I explained what the whole idea of the Golos was. However, Let's look at now, let's look at it now. Let's see if we can explain why it is that they needed, the Jewish nation needed to descend to Egypt and go to Golis at all. In fact, why did they need to go to exile? Let's look at the 70 souls as they are counted uh, um, that went to Egypt. They were all tzaddikim. They had all reached the pinnacle of spiritual awareness. They were considered to be very righteous 
by God, they were certainly of the highest possible quality that one could be as a human being in terms of faith. Why did they need to go into exile? What was the point of the exile? Why couldn't, as I asked earlier, why couldn't they simply go from Eretz Canaan to Har Sinai, get the Torah and come back? Why do they need to go through all the trials and tribulations and difficulties and challenges that they went through in order to become the Jewish nation? Let's remember that the 70 people who descended to Egypt, as they are counted um, in, in, uh, in Sefer Bereshis, that we see that there were 70 who emerged out of Canaan and came to Egypt and lived in Eretz Goshen. They were the foundational figures. They were the roots of all the neshamas of Israel, of all the souls of Israel. In which case, why did they need to go to Golis? We know that they were special in and of themselves. What do we need Golis for? Let's understand what the, um, uh, what the backdrop was to the Brisbane Absorm, the covenant that God made with Avraham Avinu. God said something very, very important to Avraham Avinu. He said to him as follows. He said, do you want your children to be the chosen nation? Do you want them to be a nation that out-survives themselves, as it were? That going to be enduring long beyond their own lifetimes? You don't just want children and grandchildren are wonderful. You know, they say that um, great wealth, let's say the Rothschild, they had great wealth. Great wealth only lasts four generations unless there is an entrepreneurial figure within the family that emerges and manages to sustain it for more generations. There's no such thing as a wealthy family that remains, fa uh, that remains wealthy beyond four generations. We're talking here in material terms, in spiritual terms, what is the enduring nature of spiritual awareness and of spiritual success, of religious success? So Avram Avinu, who himself was successful as a person of faith, had a child, Yitzchak, who was successful as a person of faith, had a grandchild, Yaakov, who was successful as a person of faith, says um, God. I mean, of course, this was before they were born, Yitzchak and Yaakov. But he says to him, how do you want to no, how do you want me to be able to tell you that I can ensure the survival of your family beyond your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, the four-generation rule? Do you know how it's going to happen? It's only going to happen if they are going to Eretz Loilohem Vavodum. That's how it's going to happen. If you want your children to be the chosen nation, that they should be worthy of receiving the ultimate gift of faith, the ultimate gift of spirituality, the ultimate God gift, the gift of the Torah. You want your children to be able to be worthy of that, not just because they're nice and good people and kind people and people who believe in God, but that they are beyond that. They've reached the next level, as it were. Do you know how that's going to happen? The only way that's going to happen is they need to go through some type of cleansing process. They need to go through a process where they're going to understand the extremes of the problems that they can encounter, not just them, but the nation 
as it were, at large and in history. And the only way that they can do that is that they, if they go to a place that is not theirs, that they are in servitude and that they are persecuted. That is the way that they are going to realize, understand and truly appreciate what it means to be an Amah Nifchar. And in that way they can, all these material aspects of life will somehow become less important. They will, they will be diminished, they will be, they will be marginalized in terms of the ultimate goal, which is to be a spiritual nation, a godly nation. Now, don't get me wrong, says God, even if your children and grandchildren are the holiest and most special people alive. No question about it. Let's remember who they are. And by the way, who their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren are. They are physical, material beings subject to all the negative elements of what that means. But in order to reach a level that you can stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and receive the Torah directly from God, they have to be able to subdue their material being. They, they have to subdue their material desires. It has to become totally secondary in terms of their spiritual journey. You should know the only way that that's going to happen is if they go into some type of exile where they will, as a matter of course, subdue their material aspects in that situation. And that is how they will merit the ultimate gift, the ultimate revelation which was going to happen at Mount Sinai. In other words, you can be very holy and very special. You can live in your ivory tower and you can maintain your standards and be as special and as wonderful as you want. But unless you've experienced the real world, unless you've been on the street, unless you've been in situations where your views, your beliefs, your spirituality... Your faith is challenged. Your faith is worthless. Unless you know that there's an alternative viewpoint that may be very strong and very powerful, overpowering almost, and you've managed to withstand it, then what is your faith worth? If you live in your little bubble, you live in your goldfish bowl, you live in your community, if you live in a place where there is no challenge to what it means to be who you are, then what does it mean? To be who you are. It doesn't really mean anything. It has no meaning because then it's just, you know, it happens to be the social group in which you mix, believes in God. So of course I believe in God. You know, there's, there's, uh, there's people in the world who are very special and very holy and very wonderful, but you wonder how they would have been had they not been born into the world that they were born into and they would have been born into a more challenging situation. Would they have been able to withstand all the challenges that they would have had to encounter in the course of getting to adulthood, to getting into a, a state of being where they could be who they were? I'm not sure. And then there are some people who are wonderful just because they're wonderful. It's got nothing to do with their environment. But if you are in a challenging environment, if you are in a situation where the very foundation of who you are is being challenged, if you are in a situation where believing in God is just not fashionable, where observing mitzvot is not something that people do. Would you observe mitzvot? Would you stick to your principles? Would you be who you were? Would you give up on it? 
In other words, what is your level of commitment? And by the way, there are those people who live in those bubbles, who live in Jewish community bubbles, who are deeply committed to their Judaism. And they imagine that that commitment could never be challenged. But to what extent is that true? Because that's their social environment. If they would reject those values, if they would reject those observances, they wouldn't have their family. They wouldn't have their friends. So it's convenient for them to behave in the way that they behave. And perhaps in a situation where it wouldn't be convenient for them, and they needed to discard certain values in order to function in what they consider to be normal society, perhaps those values would be discarded. I remember hearing many years ago that the Rebbe of Sanz, Rebbe Chaim Sanzer, was asked by one of his Talmidim, should I move to the United States of America, have a great opportunity, an economic opportunity, should I move to the United States? Now we know that Rebbe Chaim Sanzer died in 1876, so this must have been in the 1860s or 1870s. He said, certainly not. He said, why not? He said, but there's many Jews who are moving to the United States and there's shuls there, there's even Jewish schools there, there's kosher food there, there's Jewish communities. He said, you know what? I don't know much about nature, but I've heard that ants, they um, travel through the forest in big columns, in long columns, and then they reach a brook, some type of body of water, and they can't swim. But the ants continue to march, and the first group of ants that goes through the water dies, and they just stay there in the water because they're dead, until they pile up to the extent that they become a bridge for those who wish to travel over the brook to get to the other side. He said, I don't want you to be to one of those ants that dies because you've gone to the United States. Let someone else be the ant that marches into the water at the front of the line so that eventually maybe your children and grandchildren can go to the United States if there is an economic opportunity. But at this stage, your Judaism will die if you go there. And it's not advisable for you to travel and to emigrate to another country where your Judaism will be in danger. I think that this idea is very powerful because it tells you something about the strength of our own commitment to Yiddishkeit. To what extent are we able to sustain our own levels of Yiddishkeit in a place where the levels of Yiddishkeit are diminished? And I think that there is something in this incredible idea which is presented to us by the Nasibus Shalom. And he gets much more direct. In a moment I'll read to you some uh, more extracts from the Nasibus Shalom. Of course you can download the source sheet which is this particular piece of Nasibus Shalom and it's available on my website, it's available on YouTube, it's available on SoundCloud. But the Nesivas Shalom, um, which I'll quote in a moment, says as follows, that by, uh, as a result of the fact that there are those who are willing to make sacrifices in their commitment to God and to faith and to ideals, they create an atmosphere where, where it is possible for their children and grandchildren to do the same without the same level of sacrifice. In other words, you know, last year I gave a lecture 
It was called The Wild Wild West, the story of Orthodox Jewish pioneers in Los Angeles. You can find it on my website or on YouTube. I talked about some of the rabbis, some of the uh, uh, early rabbinic and Orthodox Jewish figures here in Los Angeles where I live who created an Orthodox community in the early part of the 20th century, about a hundred years ago. And they were willing to make enormous sacrifices. But you know what else they did? They managed because they reduced the challenges of what it means to be an Orthodox Jew in Los Angeles to create the possibility for there to be Jewish schools 100 years later. Otherwise, we would have to be the pioneers. We would be the ones who have to take the risks. We would be the ones who had to face the challenges. They did it already for us. That is the idea of Yaakov Avinu being Shva Esrei Shona in Mitzrayim. He'd already done that. Been there, done that. He was Yaakov Avinu. He'd faced up to all the challenges of what it means to be a Jew in Egypt. And therefore his children and grandchildren didn't have such a challenge, which was why they were able to withstand the most extreme elements of negativity and spiritual um, decline in Egypt and were able to emerge and go through the Red Sea to go through Yamsuf and to the foot of Mount Sinai and receive the Torah seven weeks after they left that country. But it was important that they went through those challenges because you cannot be great unless you've been challenged. You cannot know that your righteousness is truly righteous unless you've been challenged, unless you've been threatened, unless you've been in a situation where your righteousness is called into question and you withstood that challenge, you've been Yosef in the face of Eshes Paitifar, you've been Sora in the face of Parai, you've been Yaakov Avinu, 17 years in Egypt. How do you know you're not Ra? You only know you're not Ra if you are Toiv. And we need to thank our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, who withstood all the challenges of their times and delivered to us a Judaism that we could observe, a Judaism that we could keep, a Judaism that was relevant to us, but only because they've been able to withstand all those aspects of the generation in which they lived and emerge as faithful Jews. We are faithful Jews in their footsteps. There is only a Jewish nation right now because there was Sarah and Yosef and Yaakov and grandma and grandpa, and great-grandma and great-grandpa, and all the ones in our family tree and family history who made great sacrifices so that we can be the Jews that we are today in whatever place that we live. Do we value that? Do we realize? It's not so hard for us, wherever you live. It doesn't matter if you live in Israel, if you live in Europe, if you live in uh, the United States, wherever you live, it's quite easy to be a Jew. Do you know why it's easy to be a Jew? Because there was somebody before you who fought for their Jewish identity. There was somebody before you who was ready to challenge the reality in which they lived, withstand it, 
cast it aside and be the true Jew that they knew they needed to be in order for their children and grandchildren to be able to sustain that message, to take the Torah that we received at Mount Sinai, to take the devotion and dedication that we have to the land of Israel that existed during the time of King David and King Solomon and deliver it to the time of the Mashiach, to, to the Messianic era. We are the messengers. We are the links in that chain. But that chain, the, the links in the chain that preceded us were forged in fire. They were forged in incredible um, self-sacrifice and with great difficulty. And that's a legacy that we have to live with. That was the legacy of the Jewish nation in Egypt. But they needed to go through Egypt in order to emerge. Don't imagine that your Judaism has any value if you live in a bubble where there are no choices. I, I remember once saying to somebody who said to me, what's the big deal? You know, uh, uh, somebody who lives in a non-Jewish neighborhood uh, and, you know, they, they are um, compromised in their Judaism. I said, what are you talking about? You live in a from Jewish neighborhood. You live in a wonderful place where if you would walk into a non-Jewish store and buy non-kosher meat, that would be a great challenge for you. You couldn't do that. You couldn't eat treif if you tried. So isn't it amazing that there are Jews who live in neighborhoods where they could walk into a store and buy non-kosher meat and nobody would look, nobody would care, nobody would notice. And yet, they are willing to do something for their Judaism. They are willing to go to a kosher store and buy kosher meat and keep to the standards. They're willing to remain Jewish in the face of their ability to discard it with no repercussions. That's an incredible challenge. Let's just read one last piece of the Nesivas Sholem. gam how are we going to reach our ultimate destination of who we can be, of what it is that we can be? How can we be like the Jew who stood at the foot of Mount Sinai? How can we be one of the chosen nation? The only way to do that is not just to be a Jew who happened to be born to Jewish parents. Why are you Jewish? If you're, if you're watching this or listening to this, why are you Jewish? Have you ever thought about that? Have you actually ever asked yourself that question? Why am I Jewish? So the most obvious answer is, the reason I'm Jewish is because my, well, at the very least, your mother was Jewish. But probably because your mother and father were Jewish. Isn't that correct? Ha, huh. the Nesiva Shalom doesn't agree with you. That's not enough. That's not even starting level. That's not even the most basic being Jewish. Elo Yehudi How can you be a Yehudi, a Jew, in every aspect of who you are, in every pore of your skin, in every cell in your body? How is it possible to be that type of Jew? How is it possible to be a Jew that every aspect of your being is dedicated to your Jewishness? Not just because you have to be genetically Jewish, but because you are deeply committed to your Jewish identity and what it means to be a Jew. What is it? 
You need to work on yourself so that you, who you are, is Jewish. Your material being is Jewish. Not that you happen to be by default a Jew, but that you've worked on yourself, that you are Jewish. And if you are, just because you're born Jewish, by the way, it doesn't matter if you're born into a religious community or non-religious community, but if you're being Jewish simply is a genetic accident, but there's no aspect of yourself, your material self, which is committed to your Judaism, even if you study Torah, it's an intellectual exercise. I love studying Torah. It's my, it's my heritage. I, you know, I love studying Talmud because it tells me stories about who I am and the history of my people. What are you talking about? That's why you study Talmud? That can't be the reason. You have to be somebody. If, all you do, if the only reason you're doing it is because it happens to be the case that you're Jewish, even if you're studying Torah and you do mitzvahs, you cannot be the ultimate Jew that you could be. You may keep mitzvahs. You may never have broken Shabbos. You may never have eaten non-kosher food. But you're still not the Jew that you should be. You're not what Yaakov Avinu wanted to be when he wanted you to be when he spent 17 years in Egypt. You should know there's many different stages and levels in terms of subduing your material self. First of all, there's Taras HaMoyach. You have to clean out your mind. You have to make sure that your mind is pure. You have to make sure that your brain is a Jewish brain. Not that just you're genetically Jewish, but that you think Jewish. By clearing out all those aspects of your thought process which are more gentile, more, let's call it, uh, modern. Uh, and by the way, I'm not against modernity. But if modernity is diminishing your Jewishness, then avoid it. If it enhances your Jewishness, if it helps you in gaining greater insights to God, that's wonderful. But you always have to be conscious of it. You have to make sure that your thought processes are somewhat uh, developed so that you can be the Jew that you should be. What about your heart? How do you feel as a Jew? Where are your sympathies? What do you feel about Jewishness, about being a Jew? Not about your particular parochial interests in the community that you belong to. I belong to this shul, I don't belong to that shul. I belong to this chasidus, I don't belong to that chasidus. I went to this yeshiva, I went to that yeshiva. That's not what I'm talking about. What does it go to its essence? What does it mean for you to be a Jew? Taras halev alidei taras haretzonius uchukas halev. Where are your passions? Are your passions for silly labels? Identifying labels? Or are your passions for God? Are your passions for purity? Are your passions for faith? That's where your passions should lie. What do you do? 
I live in a Jewish community. I go to shul. I daven. I put tefillin on every day. No. When you put tefillin on, what are you thinking about? You're thinking about when, when can I take the tefillin off? When you're davening, are you thinking, when is davening going to finish? When you're learning, are you looking at your watch to see what time can I go back to my uh, phone because I need to check my WhatsApp? What are you thinking when you're involved in Torah? What are you thinking when you're involved with your Jewish life? Is it just something that you need to get through in order to get to the other end? Or is it something that is the essence of your being, of who you are? That's who you have to be. As a Jew, you have to realize that every challenge that you face, every sticker challenge, every material challenge that you face is something that you need to overcome so that you can be the best Jew that you can be, that you can stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and say, Na'asevanishma. And you know who prepared us for that? You know who created the foundation for that? Yaakov Avinu. By spending 17 years in Egypt. Yaakov Avinu, the great Yaakov Avinu. He didn't live in his ivory tower. He was willing to descend from that ivory tower and go to the place which was the ultimate location of Tumor on the planet. He sent Yehuda ahead of him to create a base medrash in Goshen, however we're going to understand that. He knew that in order to be the greatest Jew that you can be, you can only be that Jew if you live in a world of Chaimer, because God created Chaimer, God created material, materialism, the human condition, as a platform from us to escape from in order to be people of faith. That is the message of Aichi Yaakov Be'eretz Mitzrayim, Shva'asri Shona. He wanted to teach us that even though we live in Egypt, we may be there for many years. And who knows how many more years we will be in Golis. Who knows when Moshiach will come. Nevertheless, we need to understand that even in the uh, place of depravity like Egypt, the Egypt that we live in, and wherever we live, by the way, doesn't matter where you live in the world, you live in an, in an Egypt, an Egypt of some description, you can emerge like Yaakov Avinu, Shva Esrei Shana, a 17, a toiv in the face of Ra. You can be somebody who can withstand the greatest threats to your faith, the greatest threats to your godliness, even in the midst of the greatest evil. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much.